well, but but the, the key, the thing about revival is that usually when revival starts, uh, it starts collectively. We've talked about that. It doesn't start necessarily in an individual, rather it starts in a, in a group of individuals. But often what pre- precedes revival is uh, weeding out, you could say. In other words, often when God is about to... to uh, to begin revival, or people are, are, are coming to a place uh, where revival can start, meaning a place, like we've talked about, of repentance, of recognizing who we are in lieu of who He is, or rather recognizing who we are not in lieu of who He is. Uh, that process usually starts and begins by a refining process that often uh, helps, helps prune out or helps, uh, or as a uh, immediate consequence or effect of that, is that people that are just kind of doing the God thing as part of who they are, rather than doing the God thing, and when I say the God thing, walking in a relationship with Christ because He is their Lord and they have submitted their lives to His Lordship. Then people who are just walking, uh, who say they're Christians, but really their Christianity summed up is God is a facet of their life then one of, the, one of the things that happens is when revival begins to happen, as, as God begins to manifest and drive His people to repentance, drive His people to total submission and surrender, then the people who are not interested in that tend to go find something else. Um, interestingly enough, this week, you know, I, I talk about this a lot when, when we talk about spiritual gifts, but I think the same is true in regards to revival and, and whatnot. Uh, Often as a church, as American Christians, as American church, we look at numbers and facilities and, and, and things like that to symbolize the health of the church. In other words, uh, often we deem a church healthy if they are growing in numbers, one. Two, if their facilities are up to date and they've got good youth, good children's facilities, that sort of thing. Three, uh, we, we deem a church to be healthy if their budget is healthy. And so uh, uh, often we look at churches that tend to be very small, who tend to just meet budget and things like that. We tend to think, well, they're just kind of, you know, small. Everybody's heard it before, at least in ministerial circles, you know, ah, small podunk churches or whatever, right? You go out to the panhandle where Kim's from and where most of my family's from. You walk into these churches in these small towns and they're just churches of 30 people. Well, actually, uh, it's, it's just an erroneous way to look at the health of a church. The reality of it is, is that the average size of an evangelical church in the United States today is 30 people. So, if we were to deem the health of the church on the size or the amount of its members, then, then we're really taking humanistic, uh, a human measuring stick to deem the health of a church. If you go, in fact, if you go to most countries in the world, the average size of church is smaller than that. Where we got this notion that, that the health of a church is in the amount of facilities and numbers it has and the programming they can do uh, is, is really leads to, to a lack of understanding of what the church is supposed to be about. I'm not saying that big churches are unhealthy. That's not what I'm saying. But to, but to assume that a church, because it is large in size, is healthy, or because it has a flamboyant budget, uh, to, to assume that a church, because of those things, is healthy, 
is not necessarily accurate either. And sometimes I think the enemy uh, is very good at being a wolf in sheep's clothing, as the, as the word says, and allowing a church and even helping churches to grow. Now, we don't like to talk about that in the church. We, we, we'll talk about spiritual warfare when it comes to things like witchcraft, the occult, uh, Harry Potter, things like that, right? Walt Disney for the Baptists, it was for, and I can say that because I was a Baptist during the Walt Disney era where it was like, ban Walt Disney, you know, whatever. We like to talk about spiritual warfare in those fashions. One of the things that as churches we don't like to talk about is spiritual warfare or the enemy as infiltrating the church. But the reality of it is, is that probably the number one way that Satan attacks this world and this generation today is by infiltrating the church. Paul issues that warning when he begins to talk about spiritual gifts, uh, that we should be ignorant about those things. Heresy, the Bible speaks sternly about heresy. Heresy meaning false teachings. It has grave consequences for people who lead or teach false teachings and lead people astray. And the enemy, one of the ways that he tries to attack the church is by doing that. This week alone, it was interesting to me, um, one of the largest churches in America, one of the most notorious churches in America, went bankrupt. There's a church out in California called the Crystal Cathedral. It is this monumental, uh, gorgeous facilities. They have... uh, Tens of thousands of members, they do TV broadcasting and whatnot, and uh, the pastor that started the church is now dead, his daughter is now the senior pastor of the church. Uh, Anyways, this week they declared bankruptcy. This church declared that it is $43 million in debt. Not just to banks, but to vendors, to publicists, things of the sort. Now, are we to deem that the Lord would just walk with a church and then from one, literally one day to the next, just drop it? No. This church's budget, they, they bring in, okay, the average giving or average receipts of gifts and contributions to this church is over $2 million a month. How does a church that receives over $2 million a month end up in $43 million of debt and have to declare bankruptcy. Ungodly spending. Just ungodly spending. I mean, just ridiculousness. But, but to me, it's no surprise. And I really think that the enemy sometimes blesses our ventures. Sometimes when we as a church get sidetracked and we, and we start following our own ambitions and our own desires, I think sometimes the enemy wants to build up the church so that he can then, when it gets real big, real notorious, pull the rug right out from under it. Because what is the average yo-jo in, in, in California that's not a Christian, or actually around the country, that's watched these TV shows, this televangelist for years, the, you know, the skeptic, the lost person, when they look at these things, when they look at the riches, the flamboyance, the amount of money that went into building this crystal cathedral, literally the sanctuary, like three walls of the sanctuary are just glass, like 10 stories high. You know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It is just, it's beautiful, don't, don't get me wrong. But, but for years, skeptics and, and lost people have been saying, man, that church's heart's in the wrong place. Because out there, especially in California, you got people just hurting. 
homeless people and drugs and the whole nine yards. And, and we're investing money in these crystal cathedrals and whatnot. Well, yeah, we've let it get the church get real big, and then Satan just pulls the rug out from under it. And so now all those lost people are saying, ah, yeah, see, I told you so. Yeah. I have a friend. I have a friend who was a youth pastor, uh, and that's as far as I'm going to go in telling you about this friend where he worked whatnot. But a friend, my age, has a wife, two kids, got arrested this week for sexting one of his 14-year-olds in his youth group. How stupid do you have to be? Turns out that he thought he was sexting. That's where you're talking about sex and sending pictures of yourself or asking for pictures. Most of you know what that's about. Not that you do it, but you at least have friends that do. It's real rampant in your generation right now. This youth pastor... At 11.30, he contacts her. He dials her number thinking it's her number. Well, it turns out it's her mom's number. And the conversation goes the wrong direction and ends up with him send, asking for pictures and sending pictures of himself. Well, the mom went, kept it going, acting like the girl to see how far this is going to go. She wasn't even a member of the church. She was a visitor. The mom had never been to church. The next thing you know, this youth pastor friend of ours is being arrested. How stupid do you have to be? I mean, just retarded. That's not only wrong in so many levels, it's just stupid that you would think that you're not going to get caught on doing something like that. But once again, the enemy builds us up. When we buy into our own version of Christianity, when we're not following the Lord, the enemy will allow us to flourish sometimes. Most false doctrines in the church aren't false doctrines because some evil schemer decided to deceive the church. It's because pastors are not being responsible about really studying the Word and letting the Word dictate their theology. Rather, pastors are becoming lazy in studying the Word. And so instead, they're allowing their experience to dictate their theology. When our experience begins to dictate our theology, we're in a dangerous place because the enemy will, loves to give Christians an experience to get their theology down the wrong direction. And when we start experiencing revival as a church, when God brings individuals in a church collectively to, to a place of repentance, to a place where they're, where they're surrendering, they're all humbling themselves, submitting themselves to the Lord, as 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, and they're beginning to pray and seek His face, then, then God begins, and they turn from their wicked ways, then God will hear them, and He begins to heal their land. And the way God heals the land is by giving us more of Himself. And as individuals in a church or a group begin to turn from their wicked ways and humble themselves and repent and remember who they are in, in light of who He is and surrender to Him as Lord and God begins to become Lord of our lives, something happens. As the Word says, we become a light that is on a hill or a city, right? A light that lights up and we can't be hidden. And the, as the Word says, darkness hides from the light, right? And so you've got these people that got false theologies, false practices, and as people in their midst start becoming to the Lord and God starts to manifest themselves as they submit themselves to Him, then darkness, our false theologies around us, fall away. They move on. They go elsewhere. 
because darkness can't be in the light. And it's an amazing thing. It's a wonderful thing uh, to have revival. But revival isn't always easy. I remember growing up in the days we, we used to schedule our revivals. We'd put them out on the side. We're going to have a revival meeting next, you know, such and such date. Come, bring your friends, especially in small towns. We love revival meetings. We're going to have a revival meeting. We're bringing in a guest speaker from outside. We're going to get a tent because we don't all fit in the sanctuary. We're going to get the whole city there, and we're just going to have revival. And uh, sometimes, uh, and, and the, re- the, the reason we did that is because they were birthed out of legitimate revivals that used to happen back in the day in church history. Um, but we do that, and we, we want God to bring revival, and, and, and we think of revival, our generation is one that looks and hears about revival, we read about revival. This generation of the church today, especially Methodist churches, is pastored by a bunch of pastors that came out of Asbury in the 70s. They had a revival while many of them were in seminary. And so they love to talk about revival. Our churches love to talk about revival. We hear all the awesome stories of miracles, signs, and wonders that happened during revival. And so we all go, man, I wish we had revival. But the reality of it is, is that what we're talking and what those people are talking about is spiritual awakening. Spiritual awakening is what comes after revival. Revival is not flamboyantly amazing and glorious and and big hoopla. Revival is intimate. It is corporately people coming to a place of repentance. It's ugly. It's us, God, making our sins made bare before us and us coming to a place of submission and humility and surrender and asking God to come and forgive, to heal and restore. What most people get excited about is spiritual awakening. Spiritual awakening comes on the heels of revival because as God's people experience revival, then the lost people around them, one, they either run and hide, or two, they experience spiritual awakening. We have revival, a remembrance, a rebirth, a remembrance of who we are and whose we are and what we belong to and and who we belong to and what we're about. And spiritual awakening is lost, dead people coming to an awakening as they see God manifest in our lives as we remember our first love and we're renewed and filled with the spirit again then people see that and they either run from it or they turn to it and they have a spiritual awakening and that's where we see signs and wonders and healings and miracles and things is the spiritual awakening that comes after a revival but in order to have the spiritual awakening we need revival If you look all throughout the Old Testament, you see God's people time and time again having to come back to a place where they're reminded of whose they are. The prophets come and say, hey, if you don't change your ways, God's going to annihilate you. He's going to send in a nation to take you over, whatever. And what happens? Sometimes they they just ignore the prophet and they get annihilated and get captive. Or they have revival, and revival is them taking sackcloth, and taking off their garments, putting on sackcloth, putting on dust and ashes, getting on their face, fasting until God hears their weeping cries and decides not to take over their nation. We talk about revival a lot. The reality of it is, as churches, we don't like revival. I was, uh, I was when we were traveling, leading worship at different places, uh, for several years there, we would do a lot of leading worship for this evangelist named Ken Freeman. I don't know if any of y'all know him. Ken Freeman is this freak. He is a weird guy. He's like this, well, back then he was like this 40-year-old guy 
Um, I mean, he had been through the slums of the earth and come out, didn't know who his dad was. I mean, just crazy guy, alcoholic, all this kind of stuff. He walked around, he would shave a cross in the back of his head, and he walked around with that cross shaved in the back of his head. This guy was just incredibly blunt. He was just kind of one of these guys that just said, you think I'm blunt, I'm nothing compared to Ken Freeman. Ken Freeman, it was just crazy. We did some camps with him. And uh, one, of the, one of the camps we were at, I'll never forget, we were teaching the seven Hebrew words of praise uh, one night. And, and it was just a bunch of, of little churches, mostly Baptist churches there. And, and many of them had never seen drums in a service or anything like that. So these youth groups are just, they're getting freed up. They're, they're, they're just having just an awesome time. Spiritual awakening is going on. These kids are getting saved. They're worshiping God. This youth pastor and his wife, they're having a, the time of their life. The wife of the youth pastor is the pastor's daughter. Well, the pastor comes out on Thursday, drives up to Colorado to this camp. And, I mean, God had done some amazing, like, miraculous type stuff. And, and um, we had taught on the seven Hebrew words of praise. And uh, we, were, we were, Wednesday night, we were uh, speaking on halal, be clamorously foolish before the Lord, right? And the pastor shows up for Wednesday, he's going to spend the night Thursday and go home with the church on Friday, right? He's from, I kid you not, his, he's the pastor, uh, or was the pastor at First Baptist Church, Hell Center, Texas. Hell Center, that's the name of a town. Go look it up on a map in Texas. So he drives up to Colorado. He walks, gets there just in time for the evening session. He walks in, and these kids are dancing and jumping up and down and singing, and then we're teaching them how to halal, and he's standing back there at the back of the room just fuming. Oh, it was crazy. And then uh, we get done or whatever, and uh, the next morning, Thursday morning, we wake up, and we go off to do a, a session, and while we're leading the kids in worship, there's about five, 600 kids there. Uh, the director of the camp and all the youth pastors go and meet in a room, and they, they usually do that to minister to the youth pastors and stuff. Well, the pastor gets in there, and he just opens up a can of worms. He's just like, I don't care. I, this is just, you know, sin is breaking out over there in the worship center, and I'm taking my youth home now. We're leaving today. And the youth pastor and his wife were like, pastor's daughter, were like, you can fire us, but we're not going home today. God is moving. We're staying here. And so it wasn't just a spiritual feud. It was a family feud. And it just, oh, it was crazy. And the director of the camp, who happened to be my uncle at that time, at that camp, he and his wife, my aunt, basically had to lay down the law too and just say, listen, what, what God is doing, God is doing. It's biblical. And, and, and we just, we're going to ask you to do this. We're going to ask you to just pray. And so a bunch of youth pastors just prayed. The pastor prayed. We left. We went on the course of the day. That pastor went back to his room, and he fasted and prayed, and he was angry all day long. Thursday night comes around. And Thursday night, we had taught all the seven Hebrew words of praise. Thursday night, we were going to have this big worship service where we went through every single one in the worship service. And so we did it. And uh, this camp was, I remember this camp distinctively because Ken Freeman didn't preach hardly at all because kids were just getting saved during worship. I mean, we were just worshiping God, and the kids would walk down the aisles and just say, I need to have Jesus as my Savior. So Kim Freeman preached Monday night. After that, he didn't preach again. Just in worship, he'd just sit at the altar, and kids would just walk forward and get saved as we're worshiping. And he would just lead them to the Lord right there. You know, it was an interesting night, but uh, usually he speaks a lot, but he did. So Thursday night rolls around, and we're going to do all seven words, and we're doing all seven words. And what we didn't know is that this pastor... Had been, or we did know because uh, the directors and youth pastors warned us, hey, we don't know what's going to go down tonight, but y'all just do what God's leading you to do. Well, 
Well, he'd been fuming all day in his room. Fasted hadn't come out of his room. And we knew it could, you know, it could, it was going to be Harry Carey if he shows up. Well, sure enough, we start worship first, first strum of the guitar. He walks in the back and he stands back there just, you know, and the kids, we're going through all seven Hebrew words of praise. Sure enough, we're going to end up with halal. And we start halaling and the kids are bouncing off the walls and dancing and whatnot. And here he comes walking down the center aisle towards the front. Oh, boy, what do we do now? And so we're just, oh, boy, it could get scary. Well, he comes up. He grabs that mic. He turns around, and, and we're like, oh, here we go. And he goes, he says this. He says, listen, I, I'm a 70-year-old pastor. I've been in ministry for 40 years. And he told the story. I was angry last night. Uh, I've been praying and fasting all day and, and just saying, God, show me in the word where I can set these people straight. Give me your word so that I can come in there and set this thing straight. And he said, I just prayed all day long. And he said, finally, about an hour before worship tonight, God just revealed the word to me. And, and he took me to the passage where David is dancing in front of the altar. And Solomon's daughter looks on at him and says, are you a fool that you as a king would dance undressed before the altar of God as it's being brought in. And David says, in Jeff Dietz's paraphrase, English version, woman, shut your mouth, for I will become even more foolish than this for my king. He said, I'm 70 years old and I've never danced in my life. I don't know how to dance. But he said, what I can do is jump up and down floor. And he started jumping up and down screaming. That man had revival. Well, he invites us that next winter to go to Hell Center for a revival. And he brings Ken Freeman in. So we go in there, and they've got this thing on the radio for the whole city, right? And we're doing a youth-led revival. So the whole town's youth are there all weekend, thir- you know, Thursday night, Friday night. We're having fun. He wants us to teach seven Hebrew words of praise, so we're doing that. And uh, Friday night, or Saturday night, I'll never forget it, we're sitting there. And Saturday night, we walk into the sanctuary, and it was kind of about this size, except it had a balcony, too. We walk in, and there's kids all down here, and, and there's nothing but gray-haired people up in that balcony. And we're like, oh, man. And the pastor comes in and he goes, listen, they, we, we, you know, we air our services over the radio. Well, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on because nobody's talked to me. But he said, we're about to go in the sanctuary. And when you walk in, you're going to see nothing but gray-haired people. About 170 and above people up in this balcony. He said, I don't know what they're here for, but just expect anything. We said, okay. So we get in there, and we start just going through the seven Hebrew words of praise and halal and whatnot, and Ken Freeman gets up, and true Ken Freeman style, he just brings it. And he just basically just talks about revival and spiritual awakening and just talks about what being saved really is, that it's not just asking Jesus to be your Savior, but that it's confessing with your mouth that he is Lord and what lordship really is and this kind of stuff. And he just goes to town. And calls those people out. And at the end of the service, one, you know, he issues this invitation, this altar call. And we know it's either going to get ugly real quick or it's going to be awesome. And we start singing. And this 80-year-old deacon gets up out of his seat and walks down the aisle. And everybody's just like, what's he going to do? And he comes forward and gets saved. I've known Jesus, about Jesus my whole life, but I've never had a relationship with him. He gets saved. Next, the pastor's daughter gets up and gets saved. The youth pastor's wife that was up there. 
And one by one, these old people just started getting saved. That town experienced revival, and then it experienced spiritual awakening. But it's not always that way. Sometimes revival is a few in a closed room submitting themselves to the Lord, and often the church rejects revival. Often it sounds like this. Oh, those youth. Yeah, I used to get excited in my camp days too. It's just camp. Or, oh, those youth. I remember what it was like to be reckless, stupid, and passionate and abandoned. They'll grow up. Because usually revival starts with youth. Because they are stupid, reckless, and abandoned to what they believe in. Regardless of how it starts, there's one thing that keeps it going. And real quickly, I want to read a passage to you and talk just real quickly about that. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out in the early morning to hire men to work his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, so three hours into the day, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went on again six hours into the day and nine hours into the day and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And the workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. And when they had received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. There's a couple of things that I want to take note out of out of here. The first is this. On a side note, having nothing to do with revival. A work day back then was 12 hours a day. So you shouldn't begrudge when your parents go tell you to clean your room. And uh, adults, we don't have a whole lot to complain about in our jobs. Because a 12-hour day is killer. Now, some of you might be shift workers, and you understand more like what that's about, but I'm a, just a pastor. I don't understand what a 12-hour day is like, uh, except for at camp and that kind of stuff. But even then, I get to sleep. So, Anyways, a couple of things important that we want to highlight out of here. First, it was that God goes and finds laborers for the kingdom of heaven. It's not laborers who come to him to work his field. Okay. Now, we are, we are in a situation where God gives us free will, where we choose whether we want to be saved or not. 
How God in his sovereignty does that, I don't know. It blows Calvinists' minds all day long, but he does. The word says that he does. But even in our choosing him, it is God who comes and asks us to into the kingdom of heaven. John Wesley puts it like this, and y'all have heard me say it before. He extends prevenient grace. He gives us enough grace to understand our need of him. Therefore, God comes and asks us to work in his vineyard. Jesus came and died on the cross for us first so that we might choose. In revival, God is the one who comes, who's ever-present, who's always there asking and beckoning us to turn back to him. Okay? Revival, it's so necessary, and in order to be a disciple of Christ, it's necessary to remember that he's God and he always comes to us. Second thing is this. For God, there is nothing that we can do that makes us more worthy of our salvation. Notice the workers that worked 11 hours out of the day received the same reward as those who worked one hour. In order for us to experience revival, we can't look at our neighbor. In order for us to to understand or at least accept that God is just, we can't look at circumstances to dictate our reward and our value to God. We're all equally valuable to God. Some of us enjoy better blessings in life than others. Some of us will receive financial blessings more than others. Some of us will receive more kids than others. Some of us might have better marriages than others. Some of us might have better jobs than others. Some of you might have a better boyfriend or a girlfriend. Some of you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Some of you do not. But all those things are inconsequential to God, meaning they don't matter to God. God loves each one of us the same. I told the students this morning about a friend of mine in college who, who died as a missionary in Iraq. He was shot. He and his wife were obliterated. Um, and my friend ended up dying. He was the biggest goober ever, David McDonald. He, David McDonald was the kind of guy that if that he was just like a walking bad omen if you believed in that kind of stuff. If something could go wrong, it went wrong to David McDonald. This is the guy I'll never forget. We went on a retreat out at at this Baptist encampment out there, and it's like there's signs everywhere, you know, enjoy God's creation, see God in creation in this whole nine yards, and they prided themselves that they had deer walking around all the time and stuff. I'll never forget going on a retreat, a leadership retreat for the West Texas BSM, Baptist Student Ministry, and David McDonald went, and we all stayed inside, and David slept in the bed of his truck in a sleeping bag. Why? None of us understood why. Uh, until about 5 o'clock the next morning. About 5 o'clock the next morning, we're on a college retreat. You know, we're thinking we'd get to sleep into like 10. About 5 o'clock in the morning, we hear... <laughs> and we all wake up and we're like, those are gunshots. What the heck? And so we get up and we go running out there. And here comes David driving up in his big truck, truck you know, and he'd slept in the bed of his truck. And his, the bed of his truck is full of, uh, of uh, doves. And it was the first day of dove hunting season, and he wasn't about to let a retreat get in the way. Well, not, no sooner have we come out all in our pajamas, you know, and his, he's got ten, about ten dove in there, he and a couple of friends, you know, then the foreman of this encampment, Christian encampment, comes flying around the corner, and he's got his shotgun out, and he's like, who's shooting a gun? You know, we're like, uh, n- not us, you know, we're like, David, there's like, uh, don't, uh, 
it's dove hunting season. He's like, yeah, but you're at a Baptist encampment. We don't kill animals here. We want the animals here. We want people to enjoy God's creation. There's like kids camping all over this place, and you're shooting a gun. Uh, that was just David. You know, later on that night, we go out there to start this bonfire to have the campfire s'more experience. He's got his Carhartt coveralls on, and they're trying to get this bonfire started, and they couldn't get, get it started. So he goes to his truck and gets a gas can, and, 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 and they're lighting this thing, and they got this little flame. And so instead of, like, pouring it on a log or something, throwing it on there, he takes the cap of the can, and he stands over the fire and starts pouring it. Well, the fire comes up the gas thing into the can, poof! And, and all you see is this coverall from head to toe in flames, you know. And he's just running around like an idiot. Oh, I'm on fire! You know, he's running around. And sh- I'll never forget this little, little guy. He's about this tall. friend of ours named Sean Macklin. All you can hear him scream is, Stop, drop, and roll! And so he just goes and tackles him, you know. And that was just David. Every day was a new adventure with David. Crazy. He showed up to Gary Bryant's wedding wearing those coveralls. That had burn marks on him. You know, I mean, it's just David. He was just crazy. He was a goober. He's the kind of guy that everybody thought would end up in some backwoods ranch in Louisiana or Arkansas, someplace. You know, you never, you know, I, I raise Marmadukes or something like that. You know, I don't know, whatever. He ended up being a martyr for the king. He ended up being one of those that when we read in Revelation that is standing before our God right now that the angel of the Lord brings white robes and has clothed them with. And he's one of those that when you read Revelation who's sitting there standing, how long do we have to wait for our brothers and sisters to be with us so that we can worship you? He was a goober by our standards, but by God's standards, he was worthy to die for the name of Christ in Iraq. In order for us to have revival, it has absolutely nothing to do with us. Outside of just surrendering and repenting. It has everything to do with God. The beautiful thing about this passage is that it doesn't matter who you are, what you do, how old or how young you are. If you are willing, God is walking around going, what are you doing just standing there? What are you doing doing nothing? Who cares if Jeff's been doing this for years? I want you to work my vineyard too. Go. I will pay you the same amount as Jeff. doesn't matter whether you're 13. You can, you can be one who lives a life of revival and starts revival and spiritual awakening all around you. There are no human qualifications for being used by God. There are no human limitations that God can't overcome. The laborer goes out, and there's never enough. He goes out all the way into the 11th hour looking for workers to work his field. It's not good enough to sit around and look at a Richard Akiva, a Jeff, Billy Graham. Not that we're in the same stratosphere as Billy Graham, but it's not enough. God wants you to work. His attitude is, why are you standing around doing nothing? You go and work my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. Wow. 
the price that we pay for revival might be great, it might be small. As the workers, some paid dearly for that vineyard and some worked hardly at all. The price will be different for each and every one of us. But the reward is the same. It is great. It is the kingdom of heaven. And that starts now. Notice the beginning of the passage. The kingdom of heaven is like... What? What was the kingdom of heaven? Was it the pay? It was the whole process. It was the vineyard and the owner of the vineyard. The kingdom of heaven was, for many of them, the work. Many of you live a Christianity that thinks when I die, I go to heaven and receive my reward. Your eternity began the second you received Christ into your heart. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is now. It has already begun for those of you who are saved. You can be working the vineyard now. You can be witnessing. You can be living a life of revival that brings spiritual awakening to those around you. What's stopping us from doing that? And are we going to look around and look at the price we're having to pay compared to the price others are paying and start grumbling? Or are you willing to begin working where you're at, regardless of where everyone else is at? Are you willing to lose friends, to lose some, to have some in the church say you're crazy, you're ridiculous for the cause of Christ? I hope so. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for this day. I pray that you would go with us this week. I pray this week we could be laborers of yours, that we could walk in revival, that we would have spiritual awakening all around us, that as we repent and humble ourselves and submit to you, that we would see you move through us to reach the lost around us, that they might have an awakening to who you are and how you want to be involved in their lives and how you want them to be involved in your kingdom and spreading your kingdom. So Lord, guide us and lead us and direct us and empower us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for coming, y'all. We will see you later.